We open our Bibles tonight to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, and as we open God's Word, let's first bow our heads in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we come to you because there's nowhere else we can go. You alone have the words of eternal life. And so open now this Word to us. Reveal your glory to us in the face of your Son, Jesus, the only name by which we can be saved. Father, help us to have great clarity to see what your Word says and what it does not say, what is true and what is not true, what is good and what leads to destruction. And Father, these are critical things, but they're also sometimes hard for us to fully grasp. And so, Father, we need we need your Spirit's presence, and so pour now out upon us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Very early church, the apostles were very quickly called upon to defend this new claim they were making. No one had ever heard anything like it. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans had many, many gods, and they were perfectly happy for there to be another god. Uh, they had no patience for any exclusive claims. And of course, for the Jewish leaders, this was a profound threat. Peter and John had healed a lame beggar uh, right after Pentecost. And they had been brought up on charges. How dare they? Because they did so in the name of Jesus. And so the, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priest family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them 
to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. So far the reading of God's holy word. As we think about uh, things that we believe that, that are questionable, uh, the topic that was given to me was this issue of universalism. I remember very vividly as a teenager, I, I of course, I've been a musician for many years. I was working as an organist in Alora United Church. It's kind of like the United Church of Christ here in the U.S., but it was up in Canada, and uh, a pretty progressive denomination. I, I had been hired as their organist and choir director. And on uh, one weekend, they had a little retreat. Great, they really want to grow in their faith. That seemed like a good thing. Uh, they had a guest speaker come in and teach them a little bit. And at one point, uh, that guest speaker asked them to reflect for a little while in small groups on John 3.16. Perhaps one of the most famous verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so they did that, but it did not go at all as I expected, because very quickly it became obvious that they were actually pretty uncomfortable. In fact, they didn't like that verse at all, because that verse kind of seemed kind of exclusionary. What do you mean, only those who believe will be saved? Does that imply then that those who don't believe won't be saved? That doesn't seem very nice. It was a huge problem for them, actually. In fact, pretty soon that denomination had a, a new moderator who didn't believe in the resurrection, who, who really thought Jesus, I mean, nice guy, but clearly not God. They went downhill fast. See, Christianity has an exclusivity claim. And that claim is offensive. It's as offensive today as it's ever been. Maybe you've seen that, that bumper sticker that's pretty popular around today. It's called Coexist, and it has the symbols of all the major world religions on it. And, they, and, they, and those people would argue, well, everybody gets to God. I mean, some, some people get to God through Buddhism. Some people get to God through Islam. Some people get to God through Jesus. But it's all the same God. It's all really the same religion. Really, I mean... Every human being is just on this path to God. And the key is really actually ultimately to find God in yourself. Just as soon as you accept yourself and love yourself, that's when you find salvation. In fact, really accepting yourself is salvation. And even within Christianity, this view is extraordinarily popular and vocal now. And I think particularly in our day, it, it comes under, under this heading of, of love, very loosely defined. I'm sure you've heard this too. Well, Jesus' way is the way of love. And so our only task is to love people as much as he does. And since Jesus loves everybody, 
So should we. And so what's the message of the church? Jesus loves you. Jesus loves everybody. Jesus accepts everybody, and so we accept you too. In short, what they're really saying is that that God loves every human being equally without exception, no matter what. Every human being is saved equally without exception. The atheist as well as the Christian, the Hitler just as much as the greatest saint that's ever lived. We just accept people that God has already accepted. We love people that God already loves. And you should love yourself as much as God loves you. Unless we think this is a faraway problem. This is one of the things we've been battling even in our denomination, even at Synod the last couple of years. I think it's, it's been kind of intermixed in our ongoing debate around same-sex marriage, particularly uh, in the CRC, at least, the body, uh, the group, all one body that's advocating for that, often quotes Richard Rohr and Brian McLaren and Rob Bell that Jesus is kind of this this infinite horizon that pulls us into its fullness, that, that in fact religion almost is getting in the way of this universal Christ. After all, God loves everybody. Everybody is a child of God. Maybe you've heard that. And it, at first glance, it sounds kind of good, doesn't it? Oh yeah, we go up to strangers on the street, we go to the, the murderer and we say, God loves you and you're a child of God. But I think we need to pause. Is that, in fact, what the Scriptures say? Is that, in fact, true? Because when you go down that road, it leads a couple places that we did not expect at first glance. Brian McLaren concludes, finally, while the doctrine of hell gives us really a view of a deity who suffers from borderline personality disorder, or maybe even some sociopathic diagnosis. When you go down that road, then the work of Christ and the work of the cross, in fact, becomes disgusting to people. William Paul Young, who wrote that book, The Shack, a number of years ago, it was super popular. And later on, he wrote a nonfiction book uh, called Lies We Believe About God. And in there, he teaches that, that all human beings are fundamentally good, that Jesus includes everybody in his life by default, everybody is saved, and we who believe in the atonement, we're worshiping a cosmic child abuser. In fact, he concludes that evangelical faith and its teaching about judgment makes God grossly unjust, that that this Jesus is a million times more vicious and vindictive than Pharaoh or Nero or Hitler put together, that Jesus is not the Savior from sins, that Jesus died a failure and in vain and never saved anybody, that Jesus is not even a good man, but a liar, a rogue, and a deceiving rascal, and that Calvary is a farce, a travesty, and a sham. That's where it ends up. There is no sin, there is no judgment, there is no atonement, there is no salvation, and religion is actually pretty dangerous. Just love. Not as God defines it, but as I define it. I think here's the difficulty. They claim the word love, but it's not love. Because it's a lie. And I dare say it's actually a satanic, hellish lie. A lie that denies all that Christ is and all that Christ does. A lie that mocks, ultimately, the cross of Jesus. 
a lie that condemns people to hell, even as it tries to deny that hell exists. And I think in this, in this text, as the first apostles are defending the faith for the first time, we see three great realities, that there's no other Savior and no other name and no other judge. Peter says there is no other name by which we can be saved. That's the gospel message. But of course, that phrase implies that we need to be saved, that there's something to be saved from. Now that may seem obvious to us, but apparently it's not at all obvious to the world. It's not even, even obvious to people who call themselves Christians, which is which is actually rather a baffling thing. When you look at the world, if you look at the problems in the world, the struggles in the world, the pain in the world, the abuse, the tyranny, the war, the suffering, the misery, the heartache, the rampant evil and sin, how can you say nothing's wrong, everything's great, everything's just the way it's supposed to be? No human being really believes that. The problem is not that we don't know the truth, it's that we refuse to acknowledge the truth. Human beings have this extraordinary ability in sin to, to be like an ostrich. We just want to put our head in the sand, and the lion is attacking. It's ready to devour us, and we think, oh, if I just put my head in the sand, it'll go away. And the God of the universe is speaking, and human beings put their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 I can't hear you, God. I can't hear you, God. But we can hear him. Every human being was made by God and for God. Everybody was made in his image. What can be known about God is plain to them, Romans 1 says. God has shown it in the things that are made. The heavens don't maybe, the heavens definitely, clearly, always declare the glory of God. And so Paul says we are without excuse. Ventil says, the mark of God's ownership is from the beginning, writ large upon all the facts of the universe. Every human being is made in covenant relationship with God. We cannot escape it. He says, the prodigal can never forget the Father's voice. And the difficulty with human beings is that we, we know the Father's voice. We live in this world that the Father made. We're made in the Father's image, but we think that that we can ignore the Father, that we can just live in this world, that we can do with it what we want, that we can recreate our own identity, we can recreate our own existence, or we can recreate our own purpose, that somehow in foolishness we believe that we can control the course of this world, that we can have the right to determine what is good or evil or right or wrong, what is worthwhile or not worthwhile, that we can find satisfaction for our soul's desires in this world and through our own efforts. But the Bible doesn't say, oh yeah, sure, that's great, isn't that? You just pursue your own thing and then eventually God just rewards everybody. The Bible says that path is the path that leads to death. Spiritual death. Because we have walked away from God who is the source of all life. It says we're dead in our sins and trespasses. And the problem is if you're dead, you cannot bring yourself back to life. Ventil says it would do us no good to have a wonderful life-giving potion. 
laid next to us in our coffin. If you're laying in your coffin, it doesn't matter what's laying next to you because you have no power to use it. Spurgeon says you may as well build your house with water as to build salvation with such poor things as our own works. And yet God, God who is rich in mercy, who longs to have a bride for his son, a people of his own redeeming, because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses, he makes us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this is the work of God, John 6 tells us, that you would believe in him whom he has sent. And Jesus, Jesus says plainly, John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, to accept Jesus is to be saved, but to reject Jesus is to have the wrath of God remain on you. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so it concludes, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. The simple claim of Peter before these religious leaders is that there is only one who can save, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is not another religion. He's not a new religion. He's not a better religion. That he's the only way. The only. As Spurgeon puts it, he says, a thousand errors may live in peace, but truth is the hammer that breaks them all in pieces. He says, a hundred lying religions may sleep peaceably in one bed, but wherever the Christian religion goes as the truth, it is like a firebrand, and it abideth nothing that is not more substantial than the wood, the hay, and the stubble of error. Why? Why is Jesus the only Savior? I mean, is God being mean? Is he being stingy? That's, that's really the claim that's being made by, by people who claim to be Christian today, the Richard Roars and the Rob Bells. Isn't God just being mean, excluding people? But of course, we have to ask the question, is there any other way? Is there any other way of looking at the world, any other way of being that is even possible? Any other truth claim which is even conceivable? Of course, we live in a world today where we're told, basically, you are what you feel. Your identity is what you feel. David Hume, the famous philosopher, says we cannot rationally justify our belief in causality. He says we have no idea why anything happens. It just happens. Who knows? The only truth, he says, is what we feel. However, he also says that there is no self that we can really be aware of, and there are no causes to any events that we determine including our feelings, which in fact means that we are nothing and we can know nothing. That's a great way to build your life, isn't it? 
The opposite argument to that today is, is, is the empiricist, the, the scientific religion. Well, facts, that's where we're going to find real truth. But what do they mean by facts? Well, what I can see and taste and touch, what I can measure, what I can weigh, what I can calculate by my intelligence and my understanding, what I determine to be true. But do you see the, the flaw in that worldview? Only that which I can sense and determine is true. However, there is no way to determine the truth of this statement, only what I sense is true, by your senses. It's internally incoherent. It's meaningless. It's nonsense. Or my, my personal favorite is even easier to refute. There is no universal truth, which is a statement of universal truth, saying there is no universal truth. It's literally nonsense. Every other possible philosophy always devolves into literal meaninglessness, as Solomon would tell us. It means nothing. It's, it's utter nonsense. Every other worldview is self-defeating. C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because only by it can I see anything else. Or Ventil, who says we, it must be maintained that God's revelation is the sun from which all other light derives, and the best, the only, the absolutely certain proof of the truth of Christianity is that unless its truth be presupposed, there is no proof of anything. God is the source, the only possible source of meaning or existence or truth. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. From the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. My counsel shall stand I will accomplish all my purposes. There's no other Savior because there's no other God. It's only the eternal, self-existing, self-dependent, all-wise, all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful, triune God of the Bible that can explain anything and everything. In Him alone, all things live and move and have their being. All things are from him and through him and in him and for him and to him. He's not just another theory. He's not just another religion. He's the only truth that can make sense of any other truth. Now, of course, in our sinful nature, we, we don't want that to be true because we don't want to live under his authority. As, as Paul says, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the real problem. So as Peter and John are testifying before these leaders, they're, they're, not, they're not offering a theory. They're not offering a hope. It's not, an, it's not a new philosophy. It's not even a new religion. They would say, this is the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And because he's the only God, he's the only judge. You notice the context of this verse. They are under judgment here. They're sitting in a, in a courtroom setting. 
The rulers and the elders and the scribes have gathered together to judge Peter and John, but really they're there to judge Jesus. It's a judicial encounter in which claims are pressed and and judgments are rendered, and they sit there to render judgment over the work of Jesus in the world through his disciples. Jesus is the one on trial again. And in many ways, Jesus' formal trial before Pilate is just a picture of what every human being does in their hearts. Humans are constantly placing themselves as judge over God. We decided that we will determine what is true and what is not true. We will determine what is right and what is not right. We will determine whether God exists and on on what criteria he might exist and on what criteria we might follow him. We will determine what to do with our life. We will determine what direction to go. We, we, we. But the most interesting thing happens in every single encounter in the New Testament. Every time the apostles are faced in this, with this situation, well, you notice that the, the apostles, they never concede anything. Never. They, they, don't, they don't debate on their accusers' terms. They, they never debate Jewish law or Roman law. They, they don't agree to disagree. They don't argue philosophy. All they ever do is proclaim the simple and full gospel of Jesus Christ. And they press the claims of Jesus upon others. Notice how quickly the tables turn here. The, the scribes and Pharisees, they thought that they are the judges. But what does the Holy Spirit do? Peter and John, they don't get defensive, they don't apologize, they don't try to get off at a technicality. Peter says to his judges, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that it's the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but who God raised from the dead. You think you're sitting in judgment over him? (laughs) Oh, you got another thing coming. You may have crucified him, but God has raised him. This Jesus is the stone that you, who were supposed to be the builders, and yet you have rejected him, but he is now the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, they're saying, it is not you who can judge us, it is he who can judge you. It is you, in fact, who are guilty, you who judged and crucified the Lord of life, you who rejected the cornerstone, You who have turned your back and stood in defiance of the only name that can save, attested to by God himself. You have not only ignored God, but you have killed him because you wanted to reign in his place. And later on, Paul at the Areopagus puts it even more clearly in Acts 17. He concludes, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. You're not the judge, he's the judge. We're not under sentence, you're the one under sentence. God will judge the world. At the end of all things, the heavens will be opened and Jesus will come down. And on that day, none shall escape. None will 
have a good enough excuse. There will be no bargaining. But all will give account before the one who made them and the one to whom they owe all honor and worship and obedience. And there's only two possible outcomes on that great day, guilty or not guilty. And on our own merit, the Scriptures conclude that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we were left to stand on our own, not a single person would survive that judgment. The only right verdict, the only just verdict, the only good verdict would be guilty. But, but, Peter says, there is a name by which you could be saved. That now the righteousness of God is manifested through faith in Jesus Christ. That the eternal triune God has made a way. He has determined to save a people for himself. And Jesus is the eternal, the only mediator of that promise of God. That Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. That he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing and took the form of a servant. And being made in the nature of a servant, he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. That he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus commands every human being to repent and to believe in him. And if we do that, then the most extraordinary thing happens. That the one who is the judge, that the only one who can judge, now becomes our advocate. When you think about the words of Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Can any, any person in the world bring a charge against you before God? No. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what any court says. It doesn't matter what any newspaper says. It doesn't matter what any social media post says. Nobody, nobody can bring a charge against you except for Jesus. Not even your own heart can condemn you. Only Jesus. Not even Satan. Especially not Satan. He has no power to condemn you. He can accuse, but he cannot condemn. Only Jesus can judge. And yet, what's the promise? That he is the very one who died. And more than that, who was raised to life. The one who was at the right hand of God and who was now interceding for us. And so if God is for us, Paul asks, if the only one who can judge is now for you, wow, then we have everything. Then no one, then nothing can ever stand against us. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So the call of the gospel is, is always the same, repent and believe. Jesus Christ is the salvation offered. All too often, even though we might say intellectually, well, of course I don't believe that. 
some part of us, some part of us wants to say, well, I mean, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be mean. Doesn't it seem like a nice thing to tell people, well, God loves you. But here's, here's the difficulty. If they are, in fact, rebels, traitors, they have committed mutiny against the King of kings and Lord of lords, they're living in rebellion against him, they're living in alienation from him, and their imminent doom is that they will be sent to hell because that's what they want. They want to live without God. As C.S. Lewis says, finally one day God will say, okay, have it your way. You want to live without me, the source of all life, the source of all goodness, the only possible source of any blessing. It is not love to tell them, you're fine, everything's great. In fact, that's the most heinous form of evil possible. To know and to do nothing. We might also think, well, you know, I, I, I intellectually know these things, but, but internally, I'm just going to do my own thing anyway. I will live as if Jesus' claims don't really matter. I'll decide what I'm going to do. I'm going to decide what feels good. I'm going to determine who I am and what I do and what I have and what I keep and what I give, and I'm going to determine what is true and what is false. I'll determine the meaning of my own life. But God confronts every human being always with our feigned and fake autonomy as if it ever could be so. We're creatures. We're always going to be creatures. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other. All will bow before Jesus, willingly or unwillingly, on that great day. And then finally, we have then a message for the world. What kind of love is it that would hold back the only gospel that can save? What kind of love would it be to, to not proclaim or to soften or to underplay, much less to acquiesce and say, you know what, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Go ahead and believe what you want. Go ahead and live what you, how you want. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to love you so much, I'm going to love you straight to hell. That's hateful, not loving. God is the greatest possible good. The greatest possible good. To know Him is life. And to not know Him is death. And God's glory will not be scorned. In his love and mercy, he has sent his Son, and only by faith in his name can salvation be received and offered. Amnesty is declared to all rebel subjects who will turn from their rebellion and call on the King for mercy and bow before his throne and swear allegiance and fealty to him forever. And the terms of that amnesty are written and guaranteed in the blood of the King's Son. What is our answer, even within the church, to this claim of universalism? Well, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. For there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And so him we declare. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
Sometimes the lies of the world are obvious and clear, but sometimes they're more subtle. We hear that you are a God of love, and you are. And so we think by that, it must mean love the way that our culture has determined it to be. Love that accepts unconditionally even that which is vile and hateful and repugnant, even that which leads to death. But Father, you have created all things. In you, all things live and move and have their being. You define all things. You define us, and you define what love is. And you alone can determine how we can be saved. And there is only one name. There is only one way. There's only one truth. Help us, Father, to believe it with all we are. Help us to be bold in our proclamation. Help us to be fearless in our evangelism. Help us to be so filled with love that we will be willing to say hard things, things which will challenge to their very core people's false autonomy, people's lies that they have believed the ways that they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want that to be revealed, but Father, only as you reveal it by your Spirit can they be saved. And so, Father, we pray that we might be the means by which that could happen in many cases, that you would send us out with such conviction, such courage, such love, that many would come to know and to believe and to be saved in the name of Jesus, to whom we all honor and glory now and forever. Amen.